You may know you're listening to this show along the Marketing Podcast Network, but did you know there are other great shows on MPN to help your business? Christy Heiler hosts a fantastic podcast called Own It. Christy, tell us more about the show. Own It is all about celebrating women and non-binary advertising agency owners. We talk about buying out of the Boys Club of Advertising because less than 1% of ad agencies are owned by women. And where can people subscribe? You can find the podcast at untilyouownit.com. We're also on the Marketing Podcast Network at marketingpodcast.net. And of course, you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. You heard her. Go subscribe. This is the Marketing Podcast Network. Stories influence, teach, and inspire us. But what about the storytellers who create them? Uncorking a Story profiles storytellers to uncover how their background and life experiences influence the stories they create. We learn what motivates them, their path to success, and what fuels them to keep creating. It all starts by asking one simple question. Where does your story begin? Welcome to Uncorking a Story. Now here's your host, Mike Carlin. Well, hello and welcome to Uncorking a Story. I'm your host, Mike Carlin, and today I'm excited to introduce you to Will Young. Will is a dynamic motivator, author, and public speaker who delivers keynotes throughout the world. His books, plays, scripts, and short stories are about real-life events that move, challenge, and inspire people of all ages. He joins me today on Uncorking a Story to talk about his career and the book, The Unlikely Felon, a memoir of ambition, elder care, and jail. Welcome to Uncorking a Story, Will. Oh, yeah. Thank you so much. Happy to have you here, uh, Will. And I'm curious, where does your story as an author begin? Yeah, it's a great, great question. I actually started, I wrote a couple books on fundraising back in the day, and it was to help my consulting and, and the work that I was doing in the nonprofit community. That's how I got, I got started. But how I wrote this book is a little bit different story. So I, had, um, after everything had happened and, and I had completed my uh, work release, which we can get in, we'll get into all that stuff here as we go. But I talked to one of my buddies and I said, uh, he was actually in the financial business. And I said, yeah, I want to help you do some consulting. I want to help with grow your business. And he started talking it through and he said, you know, with everything that happened with you and uh, I'm a felony now, you're not going to be able to do that. And I literally just, I hung up the phone and it, this disappointment and devastation was in my stomach. And I called my wife and I said, you know what, I'm going to write a book about the story. And she's like, well, this, I mean, this definitely isn't like a business book. <laughs> this, is a, this is a tell-all. Uh, behind the screen, you know, behind the odds sort of thing. And, and, but I was so devastated because of that conversation that it pushed me. I said, I want to tell this story. I think I can help a lot of people. So that's how I, I ended up writing this book. Well, yeah, well, let's, let's dig into it then. So what, what is the backstory to this book? Tell me what was happening in your life before the events of this, you know, of this story unfold. And then of course, during and after. Yeah, I had, uh, I started as an entrepreneur in the late nineties and when I got out of college, I was really fortunate. We actually had one of the first 56K ISPs. Oh, nice. Back in the day, <laughs> before uh, uh, high-speed internet and AOL and all that stuff. But anyways, we grew the company and we were doing great. Things were going really well. I was involved with nonprofit boards. My wife was a executive director of a foundation. Just things were, were going great. And at the same time, we started taking care of my grandparents. And if anybody, your listeners and, and people watching have, been through this. It's a, a very unique process. I guess the difference with us, friends, they were two of our, our best friends, which you're usually not best friends with your grandparents. That's not, 
not always the situation, but we wore it and we started taking care of them as they were aging. They were getting into early 80s and late 80s. And, um, and so the caretaking was taking on more and more of our time and efforts. And so fast forward up to the whole financial crisis. Um, our, our business was uh, devastated in a lot of different ways. We had revenue went from you know, significant 200, 300,000 a month for a small business to, to 40,000, 20,000. And so at the same time, as we were taking care of the grandparents, uh, we decided to use some of the funds that were from the sale of the house and some of the other uh, revenue channels and use it not only to take care of them, but to take care of ourselves in that situation. Uh, we had some step relatives that had agreed that we could do that. Well, as the crisis hit and things got worse through 2009, 2010, um, they basically came back and said, well, we didn't agree how to use these funds, which a lot of the mistakes, I mean, I talk about that in the book and I, when I do these talks, I talk about all the time. I made so many mistakes and they were silly things like not getting everything in writing, not having witnesses to conversations. And, and these are people that we knew for a long time. So I never really thought about, well, I should have an agreement on that, or I should make sure that a lawyer looks at this. And, and so it was, as the whole process went along, it was devastating and uh, ended up, as I talk about in the book, in, in February of 2011, we had a knock on our door. And I literally had no idea it was the police were there to do a, a search of our house. So up to that point, we had had discussions about um, estate issues and, and dealing with who was going to do what with the grandparents, who was going to take care of who. And so all of a sudden, knock on the door, here's the police. I was dumbfounded. I had no idea why they were at our house. <laughs> I even... As I said, the boy I joked, I said, well, is it the neighbor? There's a neighbor around the corner that I think his kid might be dealing drugs. And they just looked at me like, what are you talking about? And even my wife was thinking to herself, like, are you, are you on some weird websites? Like, what are you doing? Uh, well, and, and so anyways, it was, and that was the start of really this, this incredible journey through the, the legal system. So t tell me, what were they looking for? And what, what were the charges that you were eventually brought up on? Well, it's, it's very interesting when they do these types of searches. And my experience, of course, my, my, my life of crime before this was, uh, I had an open container ticket in college and um, some speeding tickets. So, and everything I saw was on TV. And when they do a search, they come in, the, the guns are blazing and they're, they're searching your house and things. But they, uh, they ended up hand, handing me a piece of paper that said it dealt with my grandparents. And basically they were looking for any sort of paperwork us eight or 10 years dealing with ourselves as well as the grandparents is what they were looking for. But they also, and again, as we go through this conversation, I'm a little kind of cynical about the police at times and, and what their agendas are, but they were looking to trump charges. So what they try to do is they try to build as much charges against you, knowing that in the end, you're, you're probably going to plea bargain and there's some negotiating that's going to happen. And so um, we ended up at the end of everything getting charged with one count of theft. Uh, but I, but they were looking for, was I running elite businesses? Was I selling drugs? You know, whatever I, I, I could have potentially done. And tell my kids, and I tell everybody now, live your life so that if police show up, you don't have things, skeletons that will come back to haunt you because I would have. They would have, if I was doing all kinds of illegal things, they would have had full access to it. Yeah. So were they concerned about like the sale of your grandparents' property and what you were doing with the, the proceeds of it? Or just, I'm just trying to understand like, like how, how one found themselves in this situation. 
Yeah. So over about three or four years, we had um, taken care of them as well as used the funds for ourselves when, when the business had uh, gone through all the different issues at the time. And so they were basically uh, wanting all the accounting on it, um, who did what, who used funds for what. And so they basically were saying that we had illegally used this money, um, which I felt I never did. I always had, I felt I always had authority. Although another thing I didn't do, we didn't update the wills because once this process started, they were, they, they were not, they wouldn't have been competent at that point to update wills. So I tell people all the time, you know, if you're in this situation, maybe once a year, have everything updated, especially as, as somebody is declining in their physical and their mental states. But yeah, that, that's what they were looking for was an account, accounting of all the funds. Got it. So then, so what happened? So then you, you wind up, what are they, do they book you? Like, what's the, like you, <laughs> only interaction with the criminal justice system is on law and order. So yes, exactly. yes. That was, that was my, you know, I, ironically, Shawshank Redemption is my favorite movie and I felt like I was living it. But uh, yeah, it's, it's, they, they, they came in and it, towards the end, they were here for about five hours and they were going through everything. They were, they were boxing things up. They took all of our computers, all of our technology, all of our paperwork, files, you name it. And at the end, I said, are you, are you or I, actually before the end, I said, are you going to arrest us? And the lead detective said, well, we're going to figure that out. And I said, well, can I call my attorney? Right. That's in the movies. That's what, can I give my attorney? Like, I, and I had a business attorney for, for many years and I called him and, and God bless Jeff. He's passed away um, since this all happened, but um, I called him and, and he could tell, obviously with my voice, I said, they're searching my house. And what, he said, what are you talking about? I said, well, it deals with my grandparents. And he said, well, don't say anything. <laughs> he started saying, you don't want to you know, put yourself in a worse situation than maybe you already in. And though they, uh, they actually left the house, did not arrest us, I think, because they were trying to find whatever illegal things I, I'm, they thought I might have been doing. And they did an 18-month investigation. So they went around, they, they talked to everybody we knew. Um, of course, we didn't know that at the time, but during those 18 months, they, um, they did that. And then finally, we were uh, arrested. Uh, it was um, late May, uh, about 18 months later after the search had happened. Oh my gosh! So, so what, what's that process like? I mean, are, and, and are your grandparents still alive to to like know that this is happening and see this happen? No, my grandfather had passed away in two thousand and ten, and then my grand my grandmother was uh, actually she was she was alive till January two thousand thirteen, um, but of course she was she, the dementia was significant at that point. She was ninety five years old, mm -hmm. significant dementia. Not not really termed Alzheimer's, but but dementia. So um, thank God, I guess two things. Thank God they didn't deal with that. But on the other hand, if they would have been competent, they would have just said, yes, of course, Bill could have uh, done whatever he needed to do with the estate. Right. But, but that, that wasn't the situation. And so, yeah, so 18 months go by. Um, I get a call from my attorney. He says they've issued a, an arrest warrant. And I said, and at the time I was in an office 30 minutes from my home. And he said, well, your best bet is to, to drive home. Um, be careful, don't get pulled over for a speeding ticket or anything because they'll they'll take you in. And we basically, we found, um, I guess, the least trafficked, <laughs> how do I say it? The, the police station that had the, the least amount of people uh, typically in it. Uh, and so I went there that night, my wife and I went there that night and turned ourselves in. We, and we didn't want the media, we knew the media was going to be involved or had a, a suspicion that they would be. And so I think they thought we were going to go to a different police station 
And so we turned ourselves in, I, I think it was about eight o'clock that night. Uh, just couldn't believe it was surreal that it was happening. And how old are your kids at this time? Uh, they were small. They were, um, let's see, six, let's see, six and two. And then oh, we our third one. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's, that's traumatic for them too. So now you got another, you know, in addition, in addition to worrying about like your defense, you've got to think about, okay, well, who's going to look after our kids in, in like a worst case scenario. Right. Right. Short term. Well, and I, I had always, my saying was always, if, if you're not guilty, then you go to trial, you fight these things. But as I had learned through the process, the system's not set up that way. The county we were in has about a 98% conviction rate. I mean, they're one of the top counties probably in the uh, Western United States when it comes to this stuff. And, and if they have certain evidence they're here's, they're going to, they're going to make sure that you're convicted or you plea, whatever happens. And so, and, and the type of money that you have to spend, um, we had already, the, the money that we'd already had to spend even before we were arrested because of the investigation, because the minute we, the search happened, we went and we had to get attorneys, we had to start the whole process. Um, so just the amount of money and like, you're thinking, what if you lose? Where do your children go? Who's going to take care of your children? I mean, there's just so many things that are going through your mind and, and the emotions. Like you said, it's just, it's unbelievable. So before I ask what happens next, I, I just got to know, like, did somebody in the family rat you out? Like what? And I, mean, I don't mean to, that the way it sounds, right? Because yeah. that assumes that you did something wrong. But like, how would you have even come into the police's purview? Well, that's what happened is, so my belief was, my understanding was that we could use the funds. We had had discussions about it. Um, I actually had emails. There, there were several emails, but I didn't get everything signed. So it was kind of handshakes and, yeah, do what you need to do. Of course, Graham. And Gramps would have had no problem with this. And then some things happened in their life, which I, I don't go into the detail, but it changed their circumstances. And I think it changed their view of the money that had been used, um, which was roughly about 150000 Uh, And so, and they, I think their attorney, when I look back, the attorney is the one who called the police when you look at the discovery. And so I think they were kind of pushed um, into this as well as maybe they were they they felt we shouldn't have used the funds or maybe they shouldn't have told us that we uh, had permission or, or whatever. You know, I think there were a lot of different emotions going on. And I'm just guessing here uh, because I, obviously I haven't talked to them, but that's how it happened. And, and of course, the and again, this county was all about elderly, uh, elderly crime, uh, high number per capita of elderly people. And so I think they saw it as an opportunity um, to put us on display. I mean, the media was very involved in everything. And so there, I think there were some multiple things working. Yeah. So you're, you're almost like uh, being used as an example. Um, a cautionary tale, certainly. Were, were your grandparents living with you? No, they had actually, we tried to keep them in their house as long as we could. And it just got to the point where it was, we were almost over there every day. You know, they were falling, things were happening. They weren't remembering. My, my grandfather left the he actually fell asleep in the car with the car running in the garage, stuff like that. And so yeah. we're trying to, to deal with that. And then we, we put them into assisted living. And that's one thing I've learned through this process too. And is when you put people in assisted living, I think a lot of people think, well, now they're taken care of. I don't have to deal with it. It's just not true. You have to be involved on a daily, weekly basis. And we had two people in assisted living. So everything from doctor's appointments and um, laundry. And the, I mean, just there's a, just a list of all the things that you have to do and 
to me, when we put them in assisted living, it almost made it harder for us uh, to figure this this thing out. And so, yeah, that I mean, it, it was tough. All right. So now you guys are in the police station. You've turned yourself in. Uh, off to central booking, get fingerprinted. Like really, what what uh... all this stuff? Yeah, you do. Now they do your eyes. They they take an imprint of your eye. They do your your knuckles and your wrists and uh, everything that can get ink on it. They print everything and and, and John your way. Um, so yeah. And so what 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 happens next? I mean, you know, you mentioned you know ninety seven percent conviction rate. I assume it goes to plea bargain at at some point, but. Yeah, we we were very fortunate. I the attorney that I had. So my wife and I had to have separate attorneys. You can't have one attorney uh, represent two people, uh, especially in this type of situation. And the attorney I had was he'd been 35 years at the time, a defense attorney in the, the Colorado area, lots of high profile situations. He was really good and, and he was very honest about it. He said, listen, uh, if we go to trial, it's almost like a coin flip. It's going to depend on that day. What jurors do we get? What, do they have elderly parents? Do they have businesses? Have they ever had financial issues? All of this, this factors into it. And, um, but I think he was really good about saying maybe a, a, this, a play bargain is the way to go versus take this all the way. And, and the other thing too, the media was covering everything. So it's like, if you lose, good example, that judge isn't going to be able to be light on you. Um, they're going to have to maybe two years in prison. I mean, they talked about prison. <laughs> and so that uh, a chuckle because it's probably my way of dealing with the emotions of potentially having to deal with that. But yeah, that's that's where we were at. So we prepared for a trial, um, anticipating that it may happen and then uh, ended up plea bargaining about a month before the trial. Okay. Um, and so how does your life change after that plea bargain? Yeah, it's it, it, all the media coverage that that, that happened was was devastating. I, my reputation, everything I'd built for those 20, whatever, 20 years out of college, um, was destroyed. I mean, at one time I was going to run for the mayor of Denver. We were starting that process. And so I, I really wanted to make a difference. I wanted to make a difference with nonprofits, with society and just everything I'd built was over. It was, I mean, I was suicidal. I, I was, uh, even before this time, I, I'd be, well, why, why do people ever get to a point of suicide? And um, it, through this, it was just unbelievable how, how mentally exhausting it was and to lose everything. Uh, friends, you, you, you don't know what friends you have until this happens. And the shocking thing was some of the people that I thought would be there were nowhere to be found. And some of the people I thought would never help, help like there was no tomorrow. So, um, I hope, I hope to find out who your friends are, but I did, <laughs> I'm out. Yeah, that that's a country song right there. You find out, <laughs> all right. So, um, so so kind of bridge the gap between between then and now. Um, what how, how have you gone about sort of rebuilding your life, rebuilding your career, and and even your relationships? Yeah, I think now now that I look back at the time, it was obviously the worst thing that you could ever imagine, other than maybe the death of your or your child. It was probably the worst thing you could imagine. Now I look at it so differently and it's taken me a long time. It's, it's probably one of the best things that ever happened to me because it made me a better father, made me a better husband. It made me a better brother, friend, you name it. And all about, I think for me, it was the end justified the means of where I was going. I was trying to get rich almost at, at, at all 
whatever I had to do, you know, whatever, whatever I had to, to do to make that happen was where I was at. And now I look at life so differently. The last 10 years, I've, I've coached all my kids sports. I've spent a lot of time with them. I've been a cross guard at the school. Uh, my wife and I have an incredible relationship. Most people get divorced. They lose. When we talk about losing everything, um, they lose everything. Since the only thing I lost in this situation, and actually I did pretty good. Um, and they see that what that saying is, it takes a lifetime to build and, you know, a minute to lose your, your reputation, but I could have lost my wife, my kids and my life if I would have gone through with, with everything I was dealing with. So, so yeah, it's been an incredible journey. Um, and now when I talk to my, I'm very, I'm, I'm more authentic, I'm more transparent than I ever was before. Um, and I, I get people who read the book and they're, they, they'll email me. They'll submit things on Amazon and, and say, you know, I, I, this book has helped our family. Um, we were in a bind. We read the book. Well, you don't want to make the same mistakes or, or we want to have better conversations about our elderly parents or grandparents or whoever it is. So uh, it's been an incredible journey for me. Well, tell me, because I know what goes into writing a book, um, having written a few myself. <laughs> tell me about, you know, sort of making the decision to sit down and then memorialize this, you know, quote unquote on paper, what that process was like and, and what you learned about yourself as you're reliving this uh, in the, in the pages of the book. Well, there's, there's a saying out there, you, you being an author prior to you, you, you should never write for therapy <laughs> because you, know, you would usually write something that's either really good content for, for whatever subject or your, or a biography or autobiography, whatever it is about. Uh, non-emotional things, but the reality is, and you, you touched on it there, is as I went through this process, I was, I had to relive all this stuff. And so I was writing around my other, other active business activities. And I would take my daughter to, to her club sports. And while she was doing sports, I'm on the laptop and I'm, I'm writing this stuff. And I'd laugh because people would ask, well, what are you, what are you, what are you writing, Bill? And I'm like, oh, it's a proposal for, you know, a business deal or whatever, you know, I was like, how do I tell somebody that I'm writing this book? Cause I didn't know who knew our story and who didn't. And I wasn't, when you meet somebody, you're not gonna be like, well, by the way, I had this horrible thing happen to me and I'm a felon now. So, you, you know, you're, you're going through a process, but I'm, but I would just, I would, I would write and I would, I, I wanted, I wanted, you know, my main thing too is telling the story so that it was entertaining so that somebody would read it and not just a step-by-step -step point of, Here's what happened, but more of creating some, uh, I guess, drama with it and, and how things unfolded. And I had a great story. I got a story uh, editor. She was fantastic and really helped me even beyond just a normal editor of how, how do we want to set this up so that, um, and it's all authentic. I mean, it wasn't, there's not making things up, but how do we set it up so that somebody will read this and be entertained at the same time that there's a, there's a messages that about learning about elderly care and, and all this stuff. And so that's what we did. And I, it, it, I think it worked out pretty good. So it'd be remiss as an author who, who loves to use foreshadowing as a, uh, as a literary <laughs> device. Um, you know, I know that there's something about a, a 3.5 index card um, that you wrote in college that may have foreshadowed this book. What, tell me what's, what's the story on that? <laughs> yes. So I, I had, uh, uh, gone to school to, to try to play baseball and a, a buddy of mine, he was, he actually walked on the football team and, and we were sharing an apartment and I had these, the, as you mentioned, the three by five cards and I would write down my goals. And each one had a different goal and I'd 
put them up on the wall and tack them to the wall, of course, before phones. And although I still do this to this day, I write stuff down. I'm a writer that way. But, and he said, uh, he said, you know, Will, what's, what's this, um, this one that talks about becoming a billionaire and I, at, at all costs or something, I think I wrote on there. And he said, what's that about? And I said, well, that's, that's my goal. That's where I want to go. And they even, some of my friends would call me Bill, uh, William or Billiam kind of thing, you know, with a billionaire and playing, playing parts of it. Uh, but it became almost kind of a joke, but yeah, it was, it was interesting. And that's what I did. I wrote down my goals and here's where I'm going. And, you know, this is so yeah, it was, it was an interesting story. There you go. Uh, well, one of the things, Bill, I like to do to to get to know my guests a little bit more is um, get to know them through some pop culture. So I'm curious, thinking back to the days oh, no. when you were growing up, when you were a kid, what were your, some uh, some of your favorite things to watch on TV? Oh, gosh, I, that's great. I was just talking to my kids about that because I was saying we had about, I think, seven channels to choose from. But I got to tell you, uh, Friday, well, Friday night was the lineup. It was like Dukes of Hazard. Love Boat, um, and then I'm trying to remember, Fantasy Island. That oh, yeah. The one, too. And I was a big sports guy. I mean, I watched, you, you had the Saturday baseball day of the, the game of the week. Yeah, and I, I talked to kids. They're like, ESPN hasn't been around forever. I'm like, no. I remember when ESPN had started, and I'm like, I never, I'll, I'll never forget. I went over to my friends, and this guy, Chris, he was one of my buddies. He says, my dad just got ESPN at the sports network. And so I ran over to his house and I'm like, there's sports on TV. This is so cool. Other than just, you know, Sunday football or whatever it was. But yeah, I watched um, the, uh, I got the wrestling, they had wrestling on oh, Sundays. Sure. <laughs> Rick Flair and all those guys. I can't remember the names now, but uh, yeah, that's, I, I love sports, football, baseball, basketball, I watch everything. Uh, yeah, it was that, that lineup of uh, Dukes of Hazard and the, Daisy Dukes. Oh yeah, Daisy Duke. And um, but but you know nothing wrong with Love Boat either. And uh, <laughs> Fantasy Island. I mean, it's they actually redid Fantasy Island recently. They kind of rebooted it. And uh, the newer oh, really? version, it's it's not it's not terrible. Um, but it's not the same either. You know, it's certainly not as cheesy as it was back <laughs> in the late seventies, early eighties. But yeah, I'll have to check that out. I think I missed that. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's, it's not bad. Did did you remember a show called The Baseball Bunch? Were were you uh watching TV on Saturday mornings when that was a thing, or no? Yes, I do actually. That was oh, that yeah, because you had Saturday morning cartoons. The only time you could watch cartoons. Yeah, that was uh, hosted by Johnny Bench. Johnny Bench hosted. Oh uh, yes, little catcher for the Reds. Yes, that's right. Um, how how about uh, music? What did you like listening to growing up? Oh, I was a heavy metal kid. Oh yeah, I was a heavy metal. I was uh. Van Halen, uh, Bon Jovi, oh gosh, uh, ACDC, Motley Crue, and my wife and I joke around. It's like when we think of the, and you listen to the lyrics, the, the words. Oh you, man, they do not age well. Our generation's so messed up. No, I didn't say that. I didn't say that. But you know what I'm saying. <laughs> no, some, of those, uh, some of those songs do not age well. But since you mentioned uh, Van Halen, I have to ask, um, Sammy? Dave or oh, Gary? Yeah, oh, yeah, I was, I'm close on, on Dave and Sammy, but I was a Sammy guy because I got to go to more of those concerts because Dave was, uh, when he was gone in what, 85, I think? Yeah, 84, 84, 85, yeah. Um, and so I ended up going, in fact, I didn't even go to a concert with Dave. I was too young. Um, but I went to 
three or four, maybe more of Sam. And so I, and I love Sam Hagar. He was, he put on a great show. He, he, and still to this day, he's an entertainer and he's really good. And I was sad when Eddie died. Oh you know, yeah. That was, a, that was a sad day. Maybe one of the best guitarists ever. I mean, you got to put him in the top probably three or four. Yeah, just for not only his body of work, but just all the other people who came after him who were just clearly inspired by him. Um, you know, he left such a, a mark and he got a lot of people, you know, wanting to play guitar. You know, he's probably the best thing that happened to mom and pop music stores was <laughs> no kidding. Van Halen. Yeah. Um, and the story, if you know the story, but um, when they when him and Alex first started, Alex was guitar and Eddie was drums. Yeah. Can you imagine that? Yeah, and they switched. Yeah, <laughs> they switched. <laughs> they had to, they, smart decision right there. <laughs> yeah. Um, how about um, uh, last up here? Uh, letter to me. So this this is you know I call this a letter to me, your dear younger me type question. But if, if you could write a letter to your younger self, what kind of advice would you give uh, the the younger Bill Young? Yeah, I've, I've actually done this exercise and do do some of my therapy work. My my therapist was like this. Write, write a couple of these letters, the future and, and the past. And I'll tell you, I'd, I'd say, um, um, first of all, uh, save more money. <laughs> Calm down into yourself. Um, but uh, I, I would say, make sure that you slow down. Make sure you appreciate every moment. Be present in everything that you're doing. And, and know that when the stuff does happen, I'll, I'll using the other word, I'll say stuff. When the stuff happens, know that you're going to be okay. And in those moments when you're so depressed and, and devastated that you're thinking about maybe either taking your own life or, or hurting someone else or whatever, just just know that you're going to make it through. You're going to be okay. And not only that, you're going to be a better man um, when it's done. And it's it's going to be hard at that moment to see it. But later on, it's you're going to look back and go, thank God I, I made it through that. That's, that's some of the things I would say. Um, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, that and maybe get everything in writing. Yes, exactly. That's witness everything in writing. Yeah. Record right. your grandparents, everything they said. Yeah. Well, we've been talking to uh, Bill Young. Uh, the book, of course, is The Unlikely Felon, a memoir of ambition, elder care, and jail. Bill, where can people buy this book if they're so inclined? Oh, at Amazon, of, of course. Uh, lots of good. I think there's 45 reviews on there and uh, just uh, received lots of great emails and and feedback but yeah you can get it there there's uh, uh both you know uh digital and uh paperback versions so yeah and then email me let me know what you think of the book and and what it does for your life yeah well how how can people connect with you do you have a website or social yeah, media un, un, yeah unlikelyfelon.com you can go there and uh, uh just take a look at uh, my background uh books for sale there and yeah uh, learn more about uh, how i got in this situation Oh, he got out. All right. Well, I'll be sure to put that in the show notes so people can just tap on that. Uh, Bill, thank you for stopping by Uncorking a Story and letting me uncork yours. Oh, yeah. Thanks, Mike. Appreciate it. Thanks for listening to Uncorking a Story. If you'd like more information about today's guest or to find out more about Mike, go to uncorkingastory.com. If you enjoyed the show, please subscribe, rate, and review us at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in every week to hear Mike Carlin uncork a new story.